Good morning, and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan is the author of Omnivore's Dilemma and The Botany of Desire, both New York Times bestsellers. And he's a longtime contributor to the New York Times Magazine and a Knight Professor of Journalism at Berkeley. Michael Pollan is here today to talk about his new book, In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto. Welcome to Health Watch, Michael Pollan. Thank you, David. Good to be here. So let's start out with the obvious question. Why does food need a defense, <laughs> and, and from whom? Well, that's, that's the issue. Uh, food is being undermined today from two quarters. Uh, one is the industry, which is steadily uh, you know, taking whole foods, real foods, the kind of foods that traditionally people ate, and processing them uh, to within an inch of their nutritional life. And um, really replacing foods with what I call edible food-like substances. Um, so that's one source of, of attack on uh, food as we, as we knew it. The other is nutritional science, um, which has um, undermined our sense of food by encouraging us to think in terms of nutrients. Um, and and to accept this belief that a food is essentially the sum of its nutrient parts, which I think is is a false and, and destructive idea. So from those two quarters, and and of course those two things work together because the industry loves health claims. They love taking you know some very sketchy science and and cooking up a health claim to sell food uh, as as nutrients. So are are these the two forces when you talk about the fact that this is the first time in history for humans that. We aren't eating the same thing as our grandmothers were eating, that actually mm. maybe even within one generation we're changing what's considered healthy eating, and there's so much confusion around eating. Are these the two forces that are, that are propelling this change? Yeah, in my view, they are. Um, I mean, the, the leading force is the $32 billion spent on marketing food to us every year, uh, which you know exploits science in various ways, but that has done more to undermine traditional food cultures than just about anything else. Uh, and it is it is astounding how rapidly food food preference changes because food is by its nature is very conservative. Um, for most of history, people have eaten what their parents ate and what their grandparents ate. And you know, if you look at an immigrant's pantry, that's the last thing to change traditionally. But we have uh, such an aggressive industry coming up with so many different novelties and different ways to process food that uh, we are changing the way we eat almost every generation. So you, you mentioned both the, the food industry and, and nutritional science. And I know a lot of people uh, probably um, intuitively believe that the dairy industry is affecting some of these, the guidelines or the meat industry or whatever. They're, they're, they're um, advocating for they're their right. own interests. <laughs> but, but what's unique about In Defense of Food and I think some of your other books is the issue around um, nutritional science and maybe some of the, the flaws in the very endeavor that nutritional science is, is um, undertaking. Can you talk about more about this idea of nutrients versus foods and and how that is actually um, played a part in, in sure. making this confusing? Yeah, I, I want to make clear at the outset, I'm not anti-science, even though I'm very critical of nutritional the, the nutritional science we have. It's very important work, and we are learning important things about food. Um, but it is a science that is still very young, and is hobbled by its methodology. Food is very, very hard to study. It's very hard to do a you know, double-blind uh, test. There are no placebos when you're feeding people food. You can't give someone fake broccoli um, that has no calories. It, it, you'll know it's not real broccoli. So it's not like testing pharmaceuticals. Also, 
nutrition science depends on accurate reporting of what any population has actually eaten. Uh, and that when you look at how that is assessed, you realize that the whole field is based on some very faulty reporting. Uh, basically, to tell what a group is eating uh, when they're doing any kind of big um, observational or interventionist uh, food study, uh, you, you have everybody fill out a questionnaire every three months. All you have to do is fill out one of these questionnaires to realize, oh, this whole science is built on shifting sands. Because, uh, you know, they ask you questions like, how often have you had a half a cup of broccoli in the last three months? And when you did, what kind of oil was it cooked in? Do you know? Do you remember? Um, and, in fact, people underreport their food consumption by about a third. So um, for a whole lot of reasons, the science is very uh, uncertain. And, um, and we have to keep that in mind. Now, in terms of the focus on nutrients, the food scientists need to study nutrients. Like all scientists, they need single variables that they can isolate to test on their, their efficacy. Um, but we don't need to fill our heads with all this nutrient talk. You know, people ate very well for thousands of years before they knew what an antioxidant was. But it's remarkable when you think about how much biochemistry is in the ordinary person's vocabulary when it comes to food. We all talk about cholesterol and antioxidants and phytochemicals and uh, uh, saturated fats and omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids. And um, even though the scientists need this vocabulary, we don't to eat well. And I think that it has confused the issue uh, and encouraged us to look at food in a very reductive uh, way um, that really isn't true to the nature of food. Uh, so I think that that's where the science gets us into trouble. It's really, in a way, it's the reporting of the science by journalists that's, that is, you know, we, we are culpable in this. Well, it seems like the perfect example of this is the whole what's called the lipid hypothesis around mm -hmm. cholesterol and and how we've we really focused in on cholesterol as the issue and and that seems to be now decades later unraveling in in quite a mess and could you could you talk a well, little bit about that issue it's very interesting this focus uh, I, I mean, in a way the the, the lipid hypothesis and the, and the public health campaign to for, for low fat diets to get fat out of our diets is the great test case of what I call nutritionism the ideology of looking at nutrients as the central element in foods. And so beginning about 30 years ago, the government, using what it thought was the best science available at the time, uh, told us, you know, that we should, you know, get, get off of saturated fats, get off of fats in general, uh, and, and try to reduce cholesterol. The obsession on cholesterol was largely because cholesterol was the only thing we could study that had any relation to, to heart disease. It, it was a case of what's called parking lot science. You know, the, the man who loses his keys in a parking lot and at night and he looks for them underneath the lights, uh, even though he knows that's not where he lost it because that's where he can see better. Um, so to some extent, the obsession with cholesterol is parking lot science. And now that we can we recognize these other factors like, uh, you know, um, uh, homocysteine and C-reactive proteins and other kinds of fats. Um, we're looking at a more complex picture of heart disease. So anyway, so we were told to get off fat. And um, as part of that, we were told to get off things like butter and get onto margarine, uh, that this would be good for our health because saturated fats were the great dietary evil we were trying to drive from the food supply. And vegetable fats, we assumed, were okay. Um, un unfortunately, shooting them with hydrogen, hydrogenating them, uh, turned out to create a, a truly dangerous fat. So this campaign, one of the things it did, which I think was an enormous public disservice, was get people off of a possibly mildly unhealthy fat, although even that's debated, um, and onto a demonstrably lethal fat. Uh, and I think we're owed an apology for that. But that is a case where 
very limited knowledge of nutrition science um, has been used to formulate a public health message and a marketing message because, I mean, you know how many low-fat, no-cholesterol products are in the stores now. Uh, That did not serve us well. The science wasn't good enough to get everybody to change their diet. And the result was, of course, we got very fat on our low-fat diet because everybody felt they could eat as many carbohydrates as they wanted. Well, I think, it was, I think it was interesting that you mentioned margarine because you talked about early in the century prior to nutritionism that, that imitation foods were labeled as such. Yeah. And I liked that um, vignette you had about how they would dye margarine pink so that um, people would know that this isn't the real thing. You're eating something that's fake and not as good. And now we seem to have the reverse problem where um, imitation is the is touted as the real thing. Yeah, no, that's a big change. And there was a much greater sensitivity to the authenticity of food 100 years ago. There had been all these scandals about adulterating food, you know, the kinds of things that Upton Sinclair wrote about in the jungle. So there were the, there was this law. It was called the imitation rule. And if you were going to substantially change the, the, the composition of a familiar food, like yogurt or sour cream or butter, um, you had to declare it as imitation sour cream, imitation yogurt, imitation butter. Now, nobody would ever buy a food labeled imitation for the same reason who was going to buy you know, pink butter. Um, so the industry worked very hard to get that rule thrown out. And in 1973, with the help of the American Heart Association and some other public health groups that thought that this would be in the public's interest, they got the rule thrown out. And ever since then, you can take something like you can create something like no fat sour cream, even though there's no sour cream in it. You can still use the words sour cream without the word imitation. So this has taken us down this path of a highly engineered food system where food science essentially is uh, recreating foods in ways that, you know, sometimes may be fine, but very often we learn later are not fine, Um, that there is some virtue in a traditional food that everybody knows and everybody's been eating for many generations, as opposed to a novelty like hydrogenated oils, which we learn much later get us into all sorts of trouble. Well, where where do we go from here? I I know that um, a lot of people, when they see all these health claims, they hear about cholesterol, they hear about fat, they hear that omega-3s are good one year or yeah. o- O-Brand the next year. You have a little – you have a, a saying that in your book, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So the first part, eat food, would seem to point to the conundrum we're in now. Why are we so confused that yeah. we have to actually say eat food? And, and the second question obviously being – um, what is food? Well, that's the hard part. You know, my, that advice, my little haiku that's right on the cover of the book, uh, sounds really simple. And um, But when you get down to it, well, how do I know what is food? And that's what's gotten hard. because. And it took me 14 pages to define food in this book, according to one reviewer. Um, so I have, a, I have a bunch of rules of thumb uh, that, that help you when you're going through the supermarket distinguish the food from the edible food-like substances. So, for example, I say, um, you know, when you're shopping, don't buy anything your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. Just mentally bring her along uh, in the supermarket. And when you pick up that box of Gogurt portable yogurt tubes, think to yourself before you buy it, would she recognize that? Would she know what that is? Would she know how to 
eat that, um, would she recognize the ingredients? You know, yogurt's a very simple food. It's milk and a bacterial culture. Take a look at what else is in gogurt. Um, and my contention is, no, she would not recognize that as food, nor would she recognize something like, um, you know, whole wheat white bread, a very elaborate product that uh, is on the market now, 41-ingredient loaf of bread. Bread, too, very simple food. All you need is flour, water, yeast, a pinch of salt. You have bread. But now it's up to 41 ingredients. What is that stuff? It's not food. Other than bringing your great-grandmother along and, and looking at those, the number of things that are on the label that we don't understand, it looks like one of the natural ways people will uh, try to decide what to eat is by looking at other cultures that may be yeah. healthier. So we look at, say, the Mediterranean diet, and we say, mm-hmm. oh, it looks like the people in France have figured it out. So they're, they're eating well, they're having less heart disease, maybe they're living longer, or, or another example being the Japanese. That's right. Um, but it looks like even this method, along with a lot of the other st- ways we study nutrition, has quite a few flaws as well. Well, there are two, there's a couple problems there. I mean, the first is when you look at the Mediterranean diet, you have to look at the whole picture. It's not just a diet, it's a lifestyle. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, how much exercise are people getting? How much are they eating? We look at, we look at these traditional diets and say, oh, I'm going to eat Asian. I'll go to a Chinese restaurant. I'll go to a Japanese restaurant. I'm eating Asian now. Um, but, of course, very often the food that comes from these cultures to us comes in its banquet form, special occasion foods. We eat, we eat the equivalent of the Chinese feast, not everyday Chinese cooking. So that, that's one mistake. Um, But in general, there is great wisdom in these cultures. You just have to realize it's not just the content of the diet. It's the culture that surrounds the diet. So, for example, you know, the famous French paradox, these people who eat all these supposedly lethal foods, you know, triple creme cheeses and foie gras and all this kind of stuff, they are healthier than we are, less heart disease. How could that be? Well, it could be that maybe the saturated fat is not as evil as we were told. But it also could be that they don't eat very much of it and that when you look at the French paradox, you have to pay attention to the size of the plates that they use, smaller than ours. The fact they don't snack as much as we do. They don't go back for seconds. They have a a taboo on eating outdoors, you know, outside of cafes or eating in the car. Um, They eat in long, leisurely meals together. So you see, you can't just take the ingredients out of a diet. You've got to take the whole picture. And um, and that's that's very important. That does get overlooked. But in general, these are healthy diets, and they're transferable. That if you put Australians on the Mediterranean diet, they do better than they do on the kind of Anglo diet that they might otherwise be on. You have a nice quote from Marion Nessel, the nutritionist, about the the downfalls of the reductionist method of nutritionism versus the holistic mm. multifactorial method. I, I was just going to read it. It takes the nutrient out of the context of the food, the food out of the context of the diet, and the diet out of the context of the lifestyle. And it seems like, in a way, that's sort of a, a cultural food chain that goes along yes. with the food chain of of of, of ecology. Uh, absolutely right. And and she said it as succinctly as it's ever been said. And we have to we have to realize that food is not just a collection of chemicals. Food is a relationship. Food is a relationship with the species we're eating. It's a relationship with other people. It's a relationship to our body. And we we have to look at the whole picture. Um, Food is about culture. And and what I'm trying to do in this book is take it back from the scientists. Take what we can from the scientists, but realize they don't yet know enough to, to teach us how to eat. 
So what then, who does know? It's not me. It's not like I know the answer to how to eat, but culture does. Culture has been telling people how to eat for thousands of years with great success in many, many places. So what I'm trying to do is kind of channel the lessons of culture. Uh, for example, in Okinawa, you know, there is this idea that you should only eat until you're 80% full. And as it turns out, a great many cultures have a taboo against eating until you're stuffed. You're supposed to stop while you're still a little bit hungry. This is a powerful idea that we, don't, we do not have, um, but maybe we can cultivate it. So that, that's my approach in the book, is to, is to restore the authority of culture over food and just put science and marketing in its place. And, and it seems like um, there's even some suggestive evidence that eating um, slightly less calories is actually going to promote longevity. At least they've shown that in some animals. Yeah, there's some very interesting work on calorie restriction uh, and its power. And, you know, we all we love talking about the content of our diets. But, in fact, the amount of our diets may be the real problem when it comes to a lot of chronic diseases. I mean, we eat just a whole lot and, uh, and more all the time. Um, and there's, there seems little question that simply cutting down on your caloric consumption um, is, is, you know, very, very helpful to your health. The challenge, though, you can't just tell people to eat less. So what I try to do in the book is, is come up with um, ideas, rules of thumb that will have that effect. So, for example, if you're eating mostly plants, you, know, you can eat a lot more green plants without, you know, consuming a lot of calories. There are kinds of foods that you can eat that you can fill up without consuming calories. Uh, and also pay attention to portion size. Pay attention. Listen to your gut. You know, are, do you really – just because they, that restaurant is using a huge portion, do you really need to finish it? Americans really depend on visual cues to know when to stop eating. If you ask an American when do you know when to stop eating, they'll tell you when the plate is empty, when the show is over, when the bag is empty. If you ask the French, for example, or the Italians, they'll say, when I feel full. What a radical idea. In case you just tuned in, we're listening to Michael Pollan talking about his new book, In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto. Well, let's, let's go further with this culture issue because we're talking about how culture really informed us until recently about, about food. But I wonder if maybe this advent of nutritionism is actually a reflection on our culture and with our puritanical um, background and our I- well, that's and, a big part of it, yeah. and our I- ideas around food. I know in my profession as a naturopath, which also comes from a Puritan tradition that I that I personally struggle against in, mm-hmm. in giving advice. Food is often looked as a dangerous thing, yes. or as a you have to avoid the bad foods, and you're always hunting out the foods that are causing your problems. And rather than looking at what more uh, can we eat that's good of or... good foods. I think yeah. that's – it's a basic prejudice of the American approach to food that we automatically assume that the problem – if we have a dietary problem, it is a result of eating an evil nutrient. Um, it could well be such as meat. I mean a lot of people think meat is the evil nutrient, evil food. Um, but maybe the problem with meat isn't meat per se, but rather that meat pushes plants out of the diet. So, you know, every time you're eating something, you're not eating something else. It's a zero-sum relationship more or less. And uh, we also assume that since something like heart disease is a bad result, it must have a bad cause, like a bad food. But it could be the absence of a good food. Um, so it's very important to keep those prejudices, and they are prejudices in mind. Um, but in general, we, you know, we tend to take this very reductive view of food. And I think what you're pointing out about the Puritan culture is exactly right. We have a lot of trouble enjoying bodily pleasures um, because of our Puritan inheritance, and um, and food is one of those. So 
One of the things that really surprised me in doing research for the book was how far back this notion of scientific eating goes. You find it in the 1860s and 1870s. It's not just a creation of modern science. Back then, you had all these social reformers trying to instruct immigrants to America on how to eat more scientifically. It really was a way to socialize them and get them to give up their messy stews and single-pot meals and things like that, which offended these uh, the reformers. But... Um, uh, so this this phrase, scientific eating, is very old in America, and we have had a history of obsessions with if only science could give us the answer. Um, the reason for that is I think we've had a somewhat weak food culture compared to other countries, and that's because we're an immigrant culture. We didn't have that single line of this is how we eat, this is this is how you transform nature in this place where we live into the culture that is really good food. And lacking that, we look for some common denominator. And science always seems above it all to transcend any differences, and so that's who we resort to. Uh, and, of course, it's always had this great prestige in American culture. Um, so for us, the challenge is, is, is um, creating a food culture, I think. And, uh, and, and that's the work that we need to do. And, and that's the work that's happening, I think. And there's a lot of very positive things going on. The slow food movement, in a way, is an effort to create a food culture from scratch. Um, not quite from scratch, from you know, the bits and pieces of other cultures. And what's great about the slow food movement is um, it's not just looking at food as being something for physical bodily right. health, but for a variety of other purposes. Yeah. It's a, it's a cultural critique. I mean, the way that the Italians conceive of food, it isn't just about what you eat. It's about your lifestyle. It's about slowing down. It's about taking time for family, for friends. It's about completely changing the priorities of your life. Food is the way in. It's the door you go through, you know, the meal. Um, but if you, if you read the whole philosophy of slow food, you realize, oh, they're, they're after a much bigger game than a meal. And I love the the psychological experiment you cite in, in Defense of Food about the chocolate cake and how yeah. you show an American a chocolate cake and the association they have is guilt and you show a French person and they think celebration. Yeah. And when I first saw that, first I read the American Association, chocolate cake, guilt, and I was like, yeah, okay, I can sort of see it. And then I read the French reaction and I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with me? But we need to get back to that idea. Um, you know, I think health should be a byproduct of enjoying your food. It's not the goal. And I think if we focus narrowly on this idea that the whole point of food is advancing physical health, I think that that's to miss all the other equally legitimate reasons to eat, such as pleasure and community and identity and ritual and communing with other species and communing with other people. These are just as good reasons to eat as advancing your health. And if you do eat with those ideas in view you will be healthier. You will, you will eat better without even thinking about it. And, and I think a, one point to make also might be that if, if you look at all the different cultures around the world, as long as they're eating uh, really high-quality, unadulterated foods, it, some cultures have a lot of meat, others have very little, some have a lot of yes. carbs, some have very little, and a lot of them show actually the signs of, of good health and long And, and that, I think that's a very important lesson. When you look at all the traditional diets that have kept people healthy, they're remarkably varied. You know, there is not one perfect human diet. I mean, the fact is 
we have migrated to six of the seven continents. We can eat a great many different things. The human body is adapted to, uh, you know, we are omnivores, to an incredible diversity of diets. And you find people, you know, who, who've done very well on seal blubber and hardly anything else. Um, and then people eating, you know, completely forage plant-based diets. And uh, how amazing that the same animal can do well on all those diets. But the one diet to which we appear to be very poorly adapted is the Western diet. Highly processed, lots of refined grain, lots of uh, and very little whole foods, whole you know fruits and vegetables and uh, whole grains. Um, that really is the only one that we do very poorly on. And what an achievement after all these years to invented a diet that actually makes us sick. Well, if we go back to our our great grandmothers for a minute, and we're thinking in, to ourselves, let's try to move back towards eating more whole foods, less processed and and manufactured foods. Sometimes that's not so easy to figure out. I know sometimes it is if you're seeing the broccoli come down the conveyor belt or you're seeing uh, another a bag of whole grains perhaps. But um, if you're seeing a steak come down, um, two steaks could be actually entirely different foods. That's right. One could be an industrial product, uh, a feedlot steak with uh, you know that's been implanted a, a steer, from a steer that's been implanted with hormones and given lots of antibiotics, and fed on corn its whole life, and industrial other you know other industrial byproducts. Uh, the other could be, uh, and they would look the same pretty much, could be a steak that from an animal that lived outside all its life and ate grass and was finished on grass. And as a nutritional matter, those are very different foods. And that's right. And and one of the, one of the tips in the book is you need to pay attention to the diet of the animals you eat if you're a meat eater. Uh, because, you know, those are just completely different. You know, with that grass-fed steak, you're getting much more omega-3s and beta-carotene and lots of minerals and... Uh, very little saturated fat by comparison. Um, so the industrialization of our food has kind of crept in even to the whole foods. And that's why it's very important when you can to pay attention to how your food was grown, uh, whether it's uh, it's an animal or a plant. And, um, you know, it, healthy, we want to be eating healthy species that grew on good soils. And that really matters. And that's one of the reasons local food is important and organic food is important. Um, because the uh, the quality of industrial food has diminished. We You know, the USDA's own um, uh, data shows that over the last 50 years, the nutritional quality of, of a great many of the foods it tracks has gone down. Nobody knows quite why. It may be the breeds that we're using now. We've selected for breeds of plants that you know are very productive but not as nutritious. Um, or it may be that the soils from you know 50 years of industrial agriculture are not as complex, and so therefore it's very hard for the plants to manufacture all the phytochemicals, the antioxidants, and things like that. Um, so two carrots might actually be quite different yeah. coming down the conveyor belt as yeah. well. And that's why that's why you know well what kind of soil did this come from is really important. Uh, and uh, yeah, all carrots are not created equal. And does, does that mean that we need to you know, step out of the supermarket some more? And, Whenever and we can. I mean, one of my advices, first I say, you know, when, you're, when you are shopping in the supermarket, shop the peripheries. That's where the food that's been least fiddled with in the last 50 years you find, the produce, the meat, the fish, the dairy. But even better, get out of the supermarket. Shop at the farmer's market. You know, here on the West Coast, we are so fortunate 
that our farmers markets are open most of the year. There's beautiful produce any time of year virtually. And um, so we're not stuck with the supermarket. And the foods you find in the farmers market, you know, by and large, will be grown in healthy soils, will be picked closer to the peak of their, their perfection in terms of both nutrition and taste. And that makes a difference too. And um, so, yeah, and we're joining a CSA, a very, you know, very good way to get quality whole foods. But you see, talking about culture, what follows from that, because if you shop at the farmer's market or join the CSA, you are cooking. And that's a really important part of the solution. Um, When we outsource our food preparation to corporations by buying processed foods or eating in fast food restaurants, um, that's where we really get into trouble because they favor food that's very high in salt, fat, uh, added fat, and sugar. Um, and uh, it's no it's no secret why. I mean, they want us to eat as much as possible, and those are three magic buttons that you can always push, and people will respond to them. Um, but basically, outsourcing our food preparation to corporations has been a public health disaster, and we need to take back control, and that begins with buying whole foods and preparing it yourself. I, I don't remember who the interview was with, but I was reading the New York Times Magazine a, a couple of weeks ago, and someone asked, the interviewer asked, um, do Americans focus too much on happiness? And the person answered, yes, but if they care about happiness, they should learn how to cook. And I thought that was a great That's a, wonderful. A great quote because that might be the gateway, like getting connected back with the food, with yeah. the seasons, with the land, with community. It seems like it, it begins with cooking. And I think, you know, of all the cultural changes that have been, you know, most damaged, if you want to pull one thread and see where the whole thing goes, it's that we, we forgot how to cook and we stopped teaching children how to cook. And we just decided we could, you know, convenience uh, would buy us happiness. And convenience has not bought us happiness. I mean, you should, everyone should look at where, where's the time that you're not spent cooking going. In fact, in the last 10 years, we've found two hours a day for the Internet. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot more, more time dealing with our consumer electronics, uh, you know, watching television, things like that. Um, but we've given up a lot by uh, giving up cooking. And I, I think we've been sold a bill of goods by the industry that we hate to cook. I don't think it's actually true. I think people rediscover cooking. Right now we're all kind of intimidated by it because we watch heroic cooking on television. Um, but in fact, you know, it's not that hard. If you've got some garlic and olive oil, you know, you can cook just about anything in about 20 minutes. In case you just tuned in, we're listening to Michael Pollan talking about his new book, In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto. And I would imagine perhaps gardening would be another thing you'd want to add on to the list. Yeah, no question. I mean, gardening reacquaints you with what food is about. You know, that industry doesn't feed us. In the end, nature feeds us. These other species we share the planet with, these these wonderful plants. Um, and that gardening, you know, I mean, talk about local food. There's no food more local. There's no food more fresh. There's no food you know more about. Um, you don't have to worry, you know, is this adulterated? Is this coming from China and have all sorts of heavy metals in it? I mean, this is food from your backyard. Um, and not to mention, it's a great place to teach children about food. You know, I mean, there are a lot of kids today who think carrots are, you know, glossy orange bullets that come <laughs> in plastic bags. They have no idea that they're roots. Uh, and, and rediscovering that is very, very important. Well, well in Omnivore's Dilemma, you, you focused more not on our personal health and food, but on 
the ecolo- the state of the environment and ecology and also the, and the e- ethical, ethical cons- considerations. Yes. Do you think those go hand in hand with personal health, or are they at odds? Uh, no, they're not at odds at all. Actually, one of the one of the very interesting and pleasing surprises of doing this research on a book that was ostensibly about health was discovering that the best choices for your personal health turn out to be the best choices for the soil, for the community, um, for the environment, for the water. Um, And that's because the most nutritious food uh, is the food that is grown carefully by local farmers in good soils that have been well cared for. Um, The only exception to this rule uh, is fish. Um, You know, there are a lot of of arguments that we should be eating more fish. Uh, Fish is very healthy food, although some of it's contaminated. Um, But uh, the fisheries can't stand much more fish eating uh, on the part of humans. So that's the one exception. But in general... Um, the, the, my takeaway from this book is that your personal health is indivisible from the health of the entire food chain you're a part of, and that includes the health of the soil. Uh, this was an insight that the, organic, the original organic pioneers had, that you can't look at food in isolation from soil, and it turns out to be true. One of my absolute favorite parts of, of the book in Defense of Food was the part about how we are evolving with the food that we're eating. Mm. And back to this connection of um, your, about the soil being connected to the vegetable, being connected to the meat that we eat and, yeah. and so on, but also that the food that we're eating is, is um, evolving for yeah. us to eat it at certain times and that we are evolving to eat certain foods when we're exposed to them over a long period of time. And I was, I was hoping you could share well, a couple of those sure. examples. It because is a relationship. It's an evolution, co-evolutionary relationship. Uh, you know, we have changed to be able to use the foods that are available to us. So since agriculture was invented, uh, we produce more amylase, an enzyme for, for breaking down starches. Um, lactose. I mean, you know, we, we, there's, there's an enzyme that allows you to digest lactose that in most humans used to turn off right after weaning when you didn't need to digest milk anymore. Now, those of us who come from European stock or northern stock where there were a lot of cows around, we, we have a mutation that allows us to keep digesting that. There's a design process that go, goes on between humans and the, the foods they eat so that we select and that an apple is a, is a wonder of design that really makes it a perfect food. And that has to do with the fact that we've been eating it and selecting ones we liked and selecting ones that kept us healthy. So over time, the apple is this wonderful package. It has sweetness and redness to attract us, but along with that comes all these wonderful antioxidants and minerals that we need to be healthy. And that's that's Darwinian design. Um, And you know what? Modern food science, the kind of people who invent things like whole grain white bread, that is crude design compared to this long-term trial and error co-evolutionary design that's happened with our traditional foods. Um, and the more you learn about them, the more you just marvel at their complexity uh, and that this isn't something we can synthesize. You know, a leaf of thyme has 35 antioxidants in it. Um, it's a very complicated food. And then when you think of the foods we build up from scratch, you know, things like Twinkies, these are just crude by comparison. Um, and they're not tested. These other foods have been tested over countless generations, uh, and we would not there we would not be eating them if they did not do good things for us. So, um, you know, nature knows best when it comes to food design. So far, maybe someday we'll get really good at it, and we'll have a meal and a pill that's better. But I, I really seriously doubt it. 
And and to go back to the fruit example, it, you mentioned that fruit, when it most wants its seeds to be passed yeah. on, will actually have the highest nutrient content at that time of year and, and sweetness and be most pleasing to the smell. And yeah. and I would imagine then going to the farmers market would take some of that thought process out of having to figure out what's in season because we would then have the the farmers bringing whatever is well they're is in they're season. they're performing that process they're interacting with those plants and the plants are telling them eat me it's time um and the plants have evolved in such a way as you suggest that they are at the peak of their quality their appeal to us and they, you know make no mistake they are manipulating us they're trying to get us to pick them and take them and move them somewhere else with their seeds and plant their seeds that is their and this isn't intentional but this is their evolutionary strategy and one of the ways they manipulate us is give us things we need gratify our desires it's the process i described in botany of desire um, so when you pick a ripe fruit um, or a vegetable at the peak of its ripeness um, you have been manipulated to do so uh, for that, uh, but it's a healthy manipulation. It's very different than the manipulation of the marketers of Twinkies, who are manipulating you with you know sugar, salt, fat, that kind of stuff. Um, this is a, a manipulation that works. Uh, it's been proven over a great, great amount of time, many, many generations to work, and uh, so we should pay attention to what the what the food is telling us. Well, these are very be- to me very beautiful examples, and and I know we hear a lot about organic food having more nutrients because the soil is more complex and we're not trying to figure out what nutrients to put into the soil but trusting the the farming techniques but you also mentioned that uh, foods that are not um, sprayed with pesticides also are going to produce more defense chemicals inside of them which are actually some of the healthy antioxidants that we eat yes that's right um it's a theory i don't think that this has been proven but people have been trying to figure out why is organic produce often have higher levels of antioxidants and other phytochemicals and one theory is the soil is more complex so they have the building blocks to make these complex compounds. Another theory, very interesting, is that because the plants have to defend themselves, they don't have pesticides and fungicides sprayed on them all the time, they're hardier. They're more stressed in a way. And when, you, when a plant is more stressed, it produces these defensive compounds, which in fact give it its characteristic flavor and have all sorts of health benefits. Um, what the plant is using to defend itself is precisely what we use to detoxify, you know, um, detoxify various agents that come into our bodies and do all the things that antioxidant does for us, um, you know, vanquish free radicals and all this kind of stuff. So um, there is a, you know, there's a deeper wisdom in organic farming than we understood when we started it. So to end the program today, let's, let's reiterate some of the things that um, people should be gravitating towards uh, in terms of what's on their plate. Um, I, I know you mentioned that a lot of different cultures with varying diets have figured out a healthy solution hmm. to personal health and maybe also to the relationship to the earth. Where where should we start? You mentioned mostly plants. Um, are there specific plants? And and where would you how would you fit meat if somebody was mm-hmm. wanting to eat meat in, into the diet well among plants uh try to add more leaves and fewer seeds to your diet i mean basically one of the big moves uh has been away from leaves and towards seeds we eat you know seeds are grain and seeds are you know nuts and we eat lots of seeds probably too much and they're high in kinds of fats that we are getting too much of as it is. And leaves have all sorts of other things that are very valuable, antioxidants, omega-3 fatty acids, all this kind of stuff. So among plants, 
you know, focus on the leaves. I say mostly plants because I, I, I don't think you can rule meat out as, uh, you know, it is nutritious food. We eat altogether too much of it. It has a huge environmental footprint. Um, but there are uh, animal foods that are raised with great care on good soils, on grass very often, and this is very healthy food. I, I think we should be treating meat more as a condiment than as a main course. That big chunk of animal protein in the middle of the American plate probably does have to go for a lot of reasons. But uh, I don't, I'm not an absolutist like you have to eliminate meat. I, you know, I'm, I'm very moderate about all this. Um, it's all good food. Anything people have been eating for a few thousand years, I'm fine with. Um, and meat is definitely on that list. And, and would you point anybody to any specific resources if they're wanting to get more tips or more advice? No, I think we should be reading less about this and, and eating more. <laughs> I think <laughs> all the information you need is on display at your farmer's market. You know, all that food is fine. There's nothing processed there. There's nothing that's going to get you into trouble. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we should worry a little bit less about food and relax about it. You know, I, I say in the book we're becoming an, a nation of orthorexics. That's a new uh, eating disorder that some shrinks have diagnosed. It's an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Um, so there was, an, there was an article I read once that maybe is pointing to this called um, When Eating Healthy Makes You Sick. <laughs> I haven't read that. I think that's around this orthorexic it idea. It is that idea. And, uh, you know, I think that this this fixation with health and food uh, is giving people a lot of stress. And, you know, being stressed is not very good for your health either. Um, so, you know, as long as you're finding those whole foods and, you know, we know what they are when we see them. And clear your mind of this vocabulary of antioxidants and omega-3s and all that kind of stuff. You really don't need to know all the biochemistry to eat well. And just remember that your ancestors didn't know the biochemistry. And they ate pretty well. Um, they had a problem with scarcity, perhaps. We have a problem with abundance. And that's the thing is, is, is think about quantity and, and think about some of these you know, tricks that I talk about in the book about smaller portion sizes, uh, about uh, pausing, eating slowly. You know, the slower you eat, the more time there is for your stomach to tell your brain, you know, you've really had enough. We in America eat so fast that we fill up long before we've, we can even register that we're full. So pay attention to your senses when you're eating, in every sense. I mean, you know, what's going on in your mouth and what you're smelling, but also what do you feel in your body? You know, do you really, just because there's another bite there, do you really need to take it? Maybe you don't. It was great having you on Health Watch today, Michael. Great pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. We were talking today with Michael Pollan, the author of In Defense of Food, an Eater's Manifesto. Take care.